Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 192 for April 16th, 2009. Listener feedback number 64. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by GoToMeeting, the new and better way to meet with clients and colleagues. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs from soup to nuts. And here he is, our chief nut, Mr. Steve Gibson. The chief security nut. You are, you know, some would say, and in fact, I think you've probably heard this from time to time. That you are a security nut, like um, the, I'm fascinated by the by the technology and and the issues that it brings up with security. Yes, I certainly know many people conversationally in news groups and and you know through email contact who are I would say more security focused than I am. But it's not you your know, only job. It's not my only job. I just I love it because. It's, you know, it's an area of applied technology, yeah. which is, you know, certainly very interesting. Yeah. Well, today we have uh, the question and answer uh, segment we do every other show, which means we've got uh, questions from the listeners, 12 good and true listeners. Really interesting comments, uh, lots of interesting stuff to talk about, and, uh, uh, and a bunch of uh, front uh, show errata and security news and our regular, you know, startup stuff. Well, let's let's get right to it. What's the latest? um, Latest is um, I did close the show mumbling that I may uh, set up a little conflicker honeypot. That's been running for five days. Oh, so I have my own copy of conflicker and some interesting observations. Um, So much. There's so much interest in it that I've decided we really and we haven't done a podcast on it. We really need to do that. So next week's topic is Conficker. Oh, good. I'm going to I'm going to attempt to do a a complete timeline, a very clear, thorough technical analysis of it, um, and really explain how it's changed over time. I mean, the fact that it is changing as rapidly as it is 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 interesting too, and also the fact that in several cases, recent security innovations have been incorporated into updates. I mean, within days of them becoming available, there's there's an amazing amount of technology in there. I mean, none none of it's ground shaking, none of it's new, but it's unusual for the kind of authorship we have seen of these things in the past. I mean, there's a lot here. For example, its update payloads are have full cryptographic digital signatures as part of them, so that prevents any non-Conficker authors from from commandeering Conficker by tricking it to upload their own payloads. 
because Conficker checks the di- digital signature of anything it's accepting to make sure that it was signed by its authors. And as we know, that's not spoofable when it's been done right. So there's lots of stuff there. My own little copy here um, has been patiently chunking away, chugging away for the last, I guess, about five days. Um, it's it's fun. A number of things have happened. For example, um, it's it's stumbled into a couple tar pits, and the tar pits it stumbled into are run by the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. <laughs> That's interesting. They've set up a large block of IPs specifically to monitor the behavior of worms and viruses and things. And and as we remember from talking about tar pitting, what, what a tar pit is, is um, the Conficker sent out a, a connection opening SYN packet and the the responding server or service sent back an acknowledgement saying, yeah, I'd be happy to accept your connection, but oh, um, I don't have any available buffer space, so hold on a second. And what that does is that shuts down the connection but prevents it from timing out. And so for days now, um, an increasing number of connections, which my little copy of Conficker has sent out, have have stumbled into tar pits. There's actually two different ranges that I've that I've seen that have grabbed those connections and never let go of them. So it's now again the the author is so responsive that if this became commonplace, we know that he'd update the payload, and it's easy to disconnect those connections. You you all you have to do is look at how long they've been open versus how much data has been transferred, and if that falls below a certain threshold you abortively disconnect a TCP connection, which can be done easily enough. Um, but that hasn't happened at this point. So anyway, next week we're going to talk all about Conflicker. And uh, I'll tell, uh, you know, basically give a complete technical explanation. Because, I mean, it's got many different things it's doing. It's probing my local network for any any other machines on the LAN by sending out ARP queries, looking for IP, so we can talk about that. It's very patiently sending out UDP packets scattered all over the internet, but but carefully avoiding a bunch of Class A networks that it knows it shouldn't waste its time on. It's just doing all kinds of things. So it'll be fun to talk about what I've seen and what the whole industry has seen. Would you say Conficker is a well-designed uh, worm? I'm gonna. I have to be very careful to make sure people don't misunderstand my appreciation of it because yes i mean it's it is beautifully designed and i don't want i mean i want people to understand that i i recognize (laughs) you're not applauding the uh the creator yeah exactly it's it's a bad thing i mean it's causing all kinds of concern and you know it's obviously very effective at, at, at infecting and holding on to machines that it commandeers which i i am in no way am i condoning this behavior but I respect its authorship. Yeah. So, yes. Um, so here we are a couple days from the second Tuesday of April where we had the standard big monthly update, um, five critical vulnerabilities, two that were important and one that was moderate. So a total of eight patches from Microsoft on, on patch Tuesday. Um, everyone needs to do this sooner or later. There were a couple bad ones where th- there were problems found in the HTTPS 
protocol on the client side, meaning that if you were induced to, you, a Windows user, were induced to going to a malicious, secure website, you could have a remote code exploit um, against your machine based on the certificate, the security certificate that has been exchanged. So it's an interesting type of, of exploit we haven't seen before. I mean, in these details, but fundamentally, it, it it's an um, you know the the standard math problem, buffer overflow, integer overflow type problem. Um, but it's something you definitely want to get your machine patched against because you know just as we've seen with 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 Conficker, where you know back in October this was fixed. A bunch of machines haven't been patched. We've got some interesting Q&A about that also. And speaking of SSL, many people are wondering, hey, I mean, I'm, I'm reading in their feedback, hey, Steve, whatever happened to the SSL protocol podcast that you promised? And my answer is it's coming, but, you know, this is security now. And so I'm giving priority to things that are newsy and happening now, like Conficker, for example, which is happening now, the SSL protocol, well, that's, that's you know, something I want to talk about, but it's static technology that we will get to, I mean, literally as soon as something doesn't preempt us with something that is <laughs> now. <laughs> it's not, SSL ain't going away. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. Also, for anyone using VMware, there was a, the, the first major set of security updates in quite a while for VMware Workstation, uh, uh, both for Linux and for Windows, VMware Server and Player, ESX, ESXi, and uh, Ace. Um, so I was on I was on six point five point zero, and everyone that is Workstation for Windows. Um, anyone using VMware needs to go over to VMware and make sure they're current. If they haven't updated for a while, you're going to want to because there were some interesting exploits. And in fact, one is interesting enough that I've got it queued up for a podcast soon um, because uh, there are some problems with VMware which have been discovered. And they're, they're, they're not fundamental problems with virtual machines, but as always, if mistakes are made in virtual machine implementation and those are found, they can be leveraged. So it's, it's, I don't regard it as a huge glaring problem like we have if you, if you, you know, a Windows user goes to a malicious website because certainly the, the cross-section of VMware users is much smaller than, than all Windows users. On the other hand, many people are using VMware specifically for the security encapsulation it provides, and in this case, it's not. So you want to make sure you update um, VMware Workstation. Um, also, many people wrote, tell me if I did, didn't already know, and I do, uh, something that I wanted to share anyway, and that is that form, P-H-O-R-M, the, you know, the evil behind your back, intercepting your web connections and loading your machine with cookies in order to track you technology, which was surreptitiously tested with, uh, by BT over in the UK. Um, it was on its way back. There were some news about form returning and the European commission, the EC has decided, uh, not so fast. 
we're going to initiate legal proceedings against British Telecom because we feel that their prior tests, which were undisclosed, involving form, violated um, privacy rights, which are well well understood and established. Um, form is saying we did nothing wrong. Uh, both we and BT consulted our legal counsel before executing these tests, and we think we're going to be fine. Uh, anyway, the EC says, ah, we're not so sure. Let's uh, put this to the test. Hmm. So um, basically, the problem was there was non-consent. Com- there were non-consent complaints raised, and the EC is going to look at those and say, well, we agree that there is a problem with consent, which was you know, not clearly given before. Um, the other interesting change we're seeing sort of in the security landscape aside from, of course, conficers happening, um, is, is something we've talked about but never really addressed directly. But one of my favorite security columnists, Brian Krebs, who I've referred to frequently here, who writes uh, a, a security column in the Washington Post, um, talked about how what's one of the newest sort of latest um, changes is that is this notion of scareware, which is causing people to um, to visit bogus AV sites and install and register bogus AV software. What's happening is that referral fees turn out to generate tens and in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars per month. Wow. For anyone who is able to get people to to visit and install this this basically bogus AV software. So essentially what, what what's happened is, you know, viruses happened, the AV industry then responded, then awareness was raised so that everyone who's using PCs now is aware of the virus problem and and you know, we've worked on educating people about how to avoid being taken over by viruses. And then almost, you know, in retrospect, almost um uh obviously what's then happened is fake antivirus tools and warnings and and so forth have occurred so people are now having to or now now being confronted with you know oh you know you know pop pop-ups for example that say you know this system uh is acting like it has a virus please check to see um you know click click this link to have your system scanned so that will install something which then um, beats on them to register until they finally do. And in, and affiliation fees are like on the order of 50% in these cases. So, so, the, so there's a strong incentive for, for the, the, the people who want these affiliate fees to, to do whatever they can to generate the, the, the scareware warning because there's real money in it now. Yeah. So unfortunately, we know that you know where there's strong economic motivation, those things tend to happen more than when there isn't. And now we have that for this kind of in this sort of this new class of of scareware. Yeah. Um, I also wanted just to comment. I was listening to you and Paul last week talking about, among other things, um, uh, cellular connectivity. And he was talking about um, the experience he was having with his EVDO card, you know, which runs on um, Sprint or 
Verizon. And I just wanted to chime in that, I mean, I've, I've been an EVDO user, as you know, Leo, for years. And I mean, it really is a spectacularly functional system. It is completely usable bandwidth, unlike, unfortunately, what you get with the iPhone um, in, in most locations where if you don't have 3G, um, it's just, you know, painful. But uh, this little EVDO card, and now it's not even a card, a PCMCIA card as I have had, but of course they have a little USB dongle that you just plug yeah, in. Yeah, I use that just because it's easiest to move it from computer to computer. So Yeah, it's yeah, just, it's it's just a convenient. spectacular Oh, solution. I love it. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. We can actually stream video with it. It's that good. No kidding. Yeah, when Dane was, uh, when we were covering Ra's arrival in, uh, in Hawaii on her trip across the Pacific, I sent Dane with a laptop, an EVDO card, and a camera. And we got streaming video of her arrival via EVDO. It was amazing. Ah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. And it's and getting better. Sh- you know, they're really upgrading these services as we go. Yeah. Well, because it's it's popular and it's profitable. I mean, I did also hear oh, you yeah. make a, uh, I don't, I know, I think it was Paul who mentioned the fact that there are total bandwidth caps on those. Yes. You know, they say unlimited internet, but they also say in their terms of service that it's for web browsing and email, you know, not downloading movies exactly and so they they absolutely do i mean i've 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 had this long enough i've never run across any kind of a limitation because i just use it i don't have a need to down download movies when i'm you know in laptop mode um but um oh five gigs goes fast (laughs) believe me i know many people who have have run up against the cap and have had had their their provider say look sorry we're you know we're cutting you off i mean Often the accounts are just canceled. It's like, sorry, you violate our terms of, ser- of, of service. That's it. We, I, I really am. We're judicious. We don't use it except when we need it. Uh, other, I, you know, streaming video would use. And by the way, it's up and down. Total of five gigs. So streaming right. video would would eat it up pretty quick. So we have to be a little judicious in our use. But it is convenient. I I carry it with my little um, netbook so that I have always on access wherever I go. It's really great. Right. Yeah. Um, and I had a short little interesting. Um, Spinrite anecdote to share because it involves the Mac and Spinrite not being the sole solution. Uh, th- this I discovered this when I was going through the uh, Q&A postings from, uh, uh, for today's episode um, from Rob Sandlin. He, his subject was an interesting dual rescue operation. He said, I have twin nieces who one day called me. Their old iBook had refused to boot. They were devastated as many important documents and pictures were on it. I have one of the better Mac recovery tools, and it sort of saw that something was on the disk, but could not recover any of the files. So I bought Spinrite, removed the drive from the Mac, and popped it in a PC laptop. Spinrite warned about a drive about to physically die at any minute. Then it went to work and finished Two days later, oh. with re- with reporting some unrecoverable sectors and quite a few repaired ones, hmm. I pulled out the drive and connected it via USB to my own Mac. No luck. It would still not mount. I was getting desperate. So, as a last resort, I once again fired up my Mac recovery tool, which he doesn't name. I, I, I wish he had. Well, there's only um, a couple of choices. It's either AlSoft's Disk Warrior, probably is that, or uh, Micromat makes a program called Tech Tools. They're really only the, the two. We don't have a so, huge choice. So he said, once again, I fired up my Mac recovery tool, and now it could find all the files on the disk. Uh-huh. 
Spinrite obviously had been able to repair it, although it still had some problems mounting on the Mac. I'm now a very happy Spinrite owner, and I also have two very happy nieces who also now are aware of the importance of making backups. Thank you very, very much. So that's a case where you don't look at the file system. Spinrite looks at the underlying um, guts of the hard drive. Physical sector of the hard drive. Fixed exactly. whatever was wrong there. And then the Micromat or the, uh, the Disk Warrior, whatever tool he was using, which doesn't operate. I mean, they say they do. Nothing like Clearly they don't. I Nothing mean, they like Spinrite. Didn't do what Spinrite no. did. But right. once Spinrite got those sectors readable, then they could recover the file system and, and, and get things back to normal. Exactly. Yeah, that's so not. I thought uncommon. that was you know good to share with our listeners. An, an yeah. interesting hybrid, uh, a hybrid solution. A good one-two punch. Same thing happens in Windows though, where you have uh, file system level tools. You don't do file system. You need a lower level tool to recover it. The file system level tool can then take over. Yeah. Although with NTFS, the the it seems to be a robust enough structure yeah, that we're seeing, yeah. you know, uh, fewer problems for whatever I, I'm reason. I'm with you. You don't really need those tools. We're, right. you know, uh, someday I'd love you to take a look at ZFS, which uh, we've been all excited about here at the Twit Cottage, and you know, we did an interview with Sun about it. It's the it's a Solaris uh, file system. You will not believe this file system. I don't know if you're into file systems at all, but it's incredible. I mean, I'm into everything that's got I to know, do with computers. I know you are. It's next generation. <laughs> You'd be very interested. Does things like you can? It has built-in rollback, a lot of redundancy. I mean, it's a rock solid. It's basically like a RAID five in a file system. It's amazing what very you can cool. do with this thing. A lot of vir- you know virtual hardware and so forth. Yep. Hey, before we go to the questions, and we've got some great ones. Uh, I see you've put together twelve. Including a, we co- have our we have our dozen interesting questions and topics and anecdotes and things, all yes. sorts of good stuff. Before we do that, I do want to mention our friends at uh, GoToMeeting from Citrix. I'm a GoToMeeting fan. I don't know if you've ever used it, but uh, it is really the slickest way, the modern way to go to meetings. The old-fashioned way is you actually travel to meet with clients or colleagues. Waste time and gas and, and, you know, it's a pain. Nobody wants to do that anymore. The new way, well, no, it's not teleconferencing. A lot of people are doing that, but that really is, is no much, not much better because, you know, the people are bored and they're zoning out. The new way is to meet online. It's a teleconference, but it's visual. And GoToMeeting is the best way to do it. It's as good as, in fact, I think better than meeting in person, but less time consuming, less expensive, uh, much more engaging we use GoToMeeting. Ray Maxwell uses it uh, to show screens. Um, D- Dick DiBartolo used it to to uh, develop his website with a guy in Poland. It's a way to collaborate, a way to sell, a way to present, and it's free for you for the next 30 days. Mac or Windows, go to uh, GoToMeeting.com, G-O-T-O, Meeting.com, slash security now. That's our security now URL. GoToMeeting.com, slash security now. And uh, it'll take you a couple of clicks of the mouse to install. I mean, it's very fast. Uh, you can use it for 30 days absolutely free. Have as many meetings as you want. Show everybody. Get their impressions. You know what you should do is ask your clients, well, how is this experience? Is this as good as meeting uh, in person? I think they'll agree. In fact, they might say it's better if they're really honest. It saves them time, too. Go to meeting.com slash security now. Free 30-day trial for you. I like to get uh, 30-day trials if I can or more, or more because that's the best way to find out if this thing is right for you at no cost, no obligation, no risk. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them for their support. Steve Arino, you're ready for your first question, my friend. Ready. Ready from Phil in Montreal. Phil in Montreal asks, running Windows isn't professional? <laughs> Last podcast about GhostNet. 
You mentioned at the end of the podcast that running Windows is a bad idea. In fact, you said that they should run other OS or embedded ones that have not been targeted with virus or attacks. Doesn't the same argument go against what you preach? Isn't this security by obscurity? Why do you assume that other operating systems would be better? Who's to say there aren't other security holes? Seems rather bold of you to say that anything else is better than Windows. If all the airport terminals switch from Windows to an embedded airport OS 2000, who's to say that hackers who love to crash those terminals aren't going to continue? By the way, I don't think it's hackers crashing those. Windows does a perfectly good job all by itself. Uh, That was me editorializing. Uh, Plus, why do you assume that non-Windows programmers would be better than others? Seems if the programmer creates buggy software on Windows, he or she will do the same on any operating system. I'm not a Visual Basic programmer, and personally, I call it very bad, not Visual Basic. Uh, But your last remark about saying you get what you pay for, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, Steve. We can't all program an assembly. Software costs to be five or ten times more expensive and longer to program compared to people working on Visual Basic or other rapid application development, RAD tools. And just imagine how much more it would cost when you factor the cost of training on another OS and an API that is not common like Windows. Windows does have its flaws, but the assumption that anything else is better than Windows seems wrong to me. I've used Linux, BOS, Mac, and coming from the VIC-20 and the Commodore 64, I can honestly say I've crashed them all. It's pretty hard to crash BOS, but okay. They are all flawed, and a bad programmer will always be a bad programmer no matter what platform he's working on. And many times it has nothing to do with the programmer. It has to do with time. Pressure to do things faster than the competition, especially when the competition is international. Hint, hint. Uh, Sorry if this comes out mean or insulting, but I really don't think those comments were correct. Your opinion. Well, you know, I'm normally... I normally work to be PC, as they say. Yeah, um, you use you know, a lot of Windows. Politically correct. Oh, that kind of cor- <laughs> Yes. Um, Windows is a steaming pile of crap. <laughs> okay. It is. L- look what we put up with. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just unbelievable what, what the Windows community puts up with. Now, what this author of this post doesn't appreciate is that I wasn't talking about Linux or B or Mac or any consumer operating system. There's a whole nother class of operating systems, uh, RTOSs, real-time operating systems, and for embedded applications, which are, which are a whole nother class of bulletproof and solid. Um, so when I see a marquee system, um, you know, in Vegas with a blue screen of death or a Windows dialog with, I mean, what's funny is that there'll be like a, you have to click, click OK, but, you know, there's no mouse. There's no way, well, yeah, I guess you could climb up on a ladder. Um, no, I'm just kidding, of course, but because it's not, it's not a touch screen. But, I mean, the idea that, that a, a kiosk in an airport or, or a, a, a big, screen in Vegas has windows underneath it is appalling to me because it just it it that says that these people who created this are so far away from the way that kind of a turnkey system could be built on you know 
with a low volume embedded system with a real time operating system, which is fundamentally vastly more robust than this ridiculous second Tuesday of the month cycle that we're in now. I mean, I hear you laughing in the background, but I mean, I'm with you. I'm with you. You don't go. You sing it, sister. We have been we've been bent so far away from from what is reasonable. And I mean, we've gone kicking and screaming one insult after another, after another, you know, old school people when this whole auto update started said, oh, my goodness, you know, no, I want control of this. I'm going to decide what goes in my computer or not. And now, you know, I mean, and the IT got pissed off because they were sending updates all over the place and they began lumping them up in groups. And I mean, where we are is ridiculous. Now, I take my hat off to Microsoft. I salute them for somehow managing to keep this massive Hindenburg called Windows aloft as long as they have. I mean, it, it is becoming unbelievably cumbersome and 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 burdensome even for Microsoft to to understand their own creation. And and it's a consequence of evolution. Again, they're still running programs from, you know, the early 80s and and carrying all of that technology forward, which is not an easy thing to do and they're only slowly removing those old features from their from their newer systems. And we talked about, for example, the eventual loss of of 16-bit Windows support. So, I mean, I, I understand that this is not an easy thing for them to do, but, but where we are today is just, it's an atrocity. It's just, it's ridiculous. And then, for example, you mentioned last week, Leo, that, you know, that our, the electrical power grid of this technology, of, of this country ha- has been taken over. And, and essentially, there, there's spyware that's been installed, apparently, the news reports say, by China and Russia. I haven't reported much on that here because not much is known. I mean, not much is known publicly. I'm sure that our our intelligence community has much better information about that. But but again, what you find when you look is that these systems are running Windows. Somebody built some nuclear reactor control system on top of Windows, which is just like, oh my goodness, it's it's inexcusable. So so. I, when I when I read this posting, I just thought, okay, wait, time out. Let's have a re- little reality check um, <laughs> about what it is that we're all dealing with and how ridiculous this is. I mean, this is ridiculous, but it's what we've got, and so that's what we're using. Yeah, you know, I and okay, I'm trying to. I I also want to be politically correct here, so I want to defend Microsoft a little bit. I'm kind of, you know, my visceral reaction is yes, I agree with you. But uh, the issue is that Microsoft needs to be in that position because they're a business operating system. So they have to support the legacy hardware and software that they've accreted over time. I mean, in order to make it a better operating system, they need to fish, cut bait and start over, don't you think? No, you're absolutely right. It's, it's for example... It's a business con- problem they have. I've continued to study... Um, uh, computer instruction set architectures for the last few months. And um, actually, I'm finding myself feeling really interested in the PowerPC, which I think was a, a really spectacular piece of work. And it's, you know, it's sad that we've, we've seen its arc um, 
sort of diminish as it has over time. Um, but Intel is 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 where they are today because they're still supporting an instruction set yes. that basically still runs, you know, eighty eighty or eight thousand eight instructions and have dragged it all forward. They're they've they've if they were to do if they were to, to start from scratch today, they could design a spectacular chip, which because they know how, right. which would be far more powerful than and, and require you know much less energy, much less heat, much less die space. It would be much less expensive. They're they're paying a an awful price for their backward compatibility several decades back, but. We use the Intel chip because of the compatibility. I mean, that's 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 the benefit for us, and and just as we do with Windows for its compatibility, the fact that it runs anything it ever ran, it still runs today. While Microsoft attempts to bring new technology into it, you know, I mean, we grumble about all this .NET stuff that's having to be loaded down. Well, that's like the next the next way of talking to Windows, the next API layer while they're still supporting the old ones. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really do see that too, Leo, but, but I just, this note sort of said, wait a minute, you know, let, let's understand how, how bad the situation has become. And some of the other notes that, um, that we're going to be talking about in our Q&A today highlight additional aspects of this. It's, it's just ridiculous. But, so you're you saying know, there's a reason why we're seeing all these security flaws in Windows. It's it's at this point it's a can of spaghetti. It's it's unfixable. Well, you've you've heard me often defend the programmers as one myself, recognizing how strangely difficult it is yeah. to to write code which is absolutely bulletproof. It's just it's amazing how difficult it is. But this is not an insolvable problem. I mean, we've got such a ridiculous amount of power now in contemporary processors that it would be possible to, to essentially run a protected emulation layer around everything um, in order to um, in, in order in order to prevent these kinds of problems. There, there are there are things we could do. So. I I'm think just I think that's where Microsoft is actually moving. I think hypervisor in the hardware and uh, the virtualization that Microsoft is promoting, my sense, and I'm not an expert on this, but from talking to Paul Therod, is that the future, Microsoft feels that the future of Windows is totally virtualized. And that does solve a lot of these problems, doesn't it? Because it isolates yeah. stuff. It puts it away out of the out of the core. Right. I just, you know, again, I, you know, I never rant. I, I, I don't think I've ever ranted before, but <laughs> I just, I just, it was sort of a wake up call for yeah. me. It's like, wait yeah. a minute, let's just, you know, yes, we're going to move forward. We're going to keep patching on the second Tuesday of the month. We're going to put up with this. I mean, you know, with this huge bloated OS and I, again, I accept what Microsoft has done, but I just wanted to stand back for a minute and just say, hold on a second. You know, this is ridiculous. This is a this is horrific. I mean, and and what's happened with Conficker and with hospitals being brought down and with identity theft and I mean all the all the things and in the license agreement that you check it says we're not responsible for any of this. You bear the full responsibility for your use of this. No other industry ever 
has gotten away with that, except the PC software industry. That's just phenomenal. And yet, I mean, don't doesn't I mean, does NASA use it for launching rockets and things? I mean, it's used in some fairly pretty mission critical situations. I think. I mean, Windows. Yeah. It's it's used foolishly because <laughs> oh it is because you've got tools like Visual Basic that allow monkeys to program. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Steve's in a in a fine okay. fettle today. Moving along. Next question. Okay, I'm gonna calm down. Now. No, that yeah, you, know, you know, right on. It's, it's how I really feel. It's and important I, you know, to say this. Normally, I don't normally share it, but yeah. you know. And, I, and I'm not going to make this a the, the rant podcast, but I just if this was like, you know, okay. I well, and you'll get a system. lot of heat from it. I mean, there are people who, uh, oddly enough, there are people who feel about computers and their operating systems the way the way they do about mom, apple pie. You know, uh, it's it's a um, uh, uh, this kind of ownership of it. This very strong ownership of it, and so I think that's um, people who get head up about this and feel hurt about this are people who've kind of. <laughs> This is, but you're hurt. You're attacking my operating system. It's just a piece of code, folks. Yeah. Well, and I think part of this is that I've been spending a lot of time looking at history and looking at back at the fundamentals. And I have remembered that there are alternatives, especially, I mean, not for mom and pop, not for you and me. I'm, I'm not complaining that I'm on Windows. I mean, this is the, this is where everyone is. It's where I need to be. But there are, there are, really robust, small, fantastic operating systems that should be used for things like kiosks and, 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 you know, shuttle systems. I mean, that's what they use are these really good operating systems, which are not anything that consumers touch, but, you know, there is a whole different way for computers to work than this, this disaster of barely, functioning and stumbling along and weird things happen and people don't know why they're they can't print anymore or their windows update doesn't update anymore or you know one of their two screens just doesn't work anymore i mean things are just falling off because it's barely functioning and we've we've kind of come to accept that haven't we i mean we kind of have, have come to assume that's just the way it is yes look that's my point look what we put up with yeah we put up with Something that is so ridiculous. You're saying it doesn't and have to be that way. It's all our fault, Leo. It's our fault for visiting that website. It's our fault for clicking that link. Right. It's our fault right. for for not rebooting often enough. You know, I do say this on the radio show. It's not. In fact, that's the that's the tagline of call for help on the radio show. It's not your fault. And I think you know we put there's a huge burden on users to be security experts to protect themselves, and it's only because the software we're using is so poorly designed. Yeah. Okay. Question two, <laughs> Dan Rector in Rochester, Minnesota. No, is that? Yeah, it is question two. Uh, page eight, but question two. Uh, wants a page of Steve's software picks. Steve, first of all, thanks for the work and dedication you do uh, in producing Security Now each and every week. I've been a listener since show one. Could you create a page, if there isn't one already, if there is, I haven't found it, that has links to or at the very least lists the software you found over time and have become Things you use all the time or are your favorites. Tools like Taskbar Shuffle, All Snap, Image for Windows, which you mentioned the other day. I often hear you talk about these programs and listening to the podcast, and it plants a seed. When I have a need for one of these programs or I'm installing on a new computer, it takes quite a while to search the transcripts to find the reference to the program. I know what he means. I mean, I'd love that 
uh, too. I don't know if that if that's something we should do or you could do. Well, um, I've made it. I stuck it on my to do list. I'm I I will get to it when I can. I just wanted to post the question because so many people have asked for that, and you know I I don't want to get into this mode of like Steve's pick of the week sort of. Yeah, deal. yeah, yeah. We do that already on Windows Weekly. We have quite a few of them actually. Yeah. And and my problem is what you tend to do then is to feel like you have to right. come up with something. You force it. I want to be driven by the excellence of what I find rather than the need to find something. So, but, but it absolutely makes sense for me to have a page where I can say, oh, and I've added that to, you know, my favorite software page on grc.com. I don't have that yet. But I'm going to put that together with the stuff that I've talked about so that there will be a place where everyone can go to, 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 you know, to go through that. And, you know, I'll use it myself when I'm setting up a new system. It'll just be easy to go click, 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 yeah. click, 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 click and suck all those things down. I mean, we have that's kind of what the wiki is for. And it may be that somebody would like to a volunteer and do that on the wiki as well. Wiki.twit.tv. Anybody can edit, create pages, add uh, content. And uh, if you've already been keeping a, such a list, it would be a simple thing to paste it in. Um, and then keep it up to date. You yep, get help from the community as well. Uh, JT Aaron in Houston wonders if Steve isn't way too trusting. Steve, you're way too trusting. Uh, he says, you talked in a recent show about installing, trying, liking, and then recommending a brand new Firefox plugin. How do you know if a new plugin just released is a security threat? Especially when the new cool app is not from an established company. Great shows, by the way. Good question. It is a good question, um, and I think I agree that I'm probably too trusting. Um, I, it, it is certainly the case that I, I take a look at sort of the motivation, the, the, the site where the, where the plugin came from, try to get some feeling, you know, as, as soft and fuzzy as that is. It's certainly not scientific, but, you know, get some feeling for, for where this came from and for why, what the user designed it for. Often their sites will say, yeah, I was struggling with this for some time and I decided just to write my own sort of thing. Now it's absolutely the case that there could be a security problem with a plugin that is an inadvertent problem as opposed to something malicious. On the other hand, established companies have those just as often as, you know, as guys working from their bedroom and and publishing these. So I don't think there's any reason to believe that an, an established company's plugins are going to be in any way more fundamentally secure than something that an individual writes. And and again, it is the case also that that things that have very low yield tend not to be targets. I mean, Windows is a much bigger target than the Mac because it's 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 what 90 something percent of the world is using. And as we'll find out later in this podcast, a big chunk of the world um, isn't using legitimate copies. And so those are of Windows and those are even a bigger problem. So, you know, it's the case that it's, it's, it seems very unlikely that were there to be a problem in, you know, my, my hierarchical tab tree organizer, that some malicious software is going to target that because the, the, the chance of someone using that is diminishingly small, even among Firefox users who are still in the minority of all browser users. So, you know, I, I, I agree with, I agree with JT. I think I tend to be too trusting. I also think that the actual target surface is small 
for these relative to the whole browser or the whole operating system that have much larger attack services. If you were going to do it, how would you how would you go about that? Would you put a, a network analyzer on it and stuff like that? I mean, how would you, how would you test it? Well, yeah, you can't. I mean, it, the 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 presumption is that it's non-malicious intent. That is that there might be a mistake made, in which case, you know, I mean, if you who knows where the problem is? What particular uh, set of of co- of coincidences of traffic could cause there to be a problem, and and what the result would be? I mean, probably what would happen is it would become unstable. It would be crashing, and you'd go, "Oh, I think I I want to remove that from Fo- from Firefox." So you'd take it out because there was a buffer overflow that was was producing a you know a denial of service attack. That is, you know, denying you the service of your browser and i mean and certainly that happens we know that there are poorly written there's poorly written add-ons which crash your browser so what do you do you take them out so so the, so here's a poorly written add-on which works for some subset of people until it crashes them well during that little window of opportunity maybe that crash could be turned into an exploit but before that has a chance to happen, you've removed it because you decided, well, this is this is you know buggy software. So that bugs, which which created the opportunity for an exploit, you've removed because you say, okay, this thing's not ready for prime time yet. All right, moving on. Taylor Shrek, no relation, in Rochester, Minnesota. <laughs> I made a little joke, a little funny there. In Rochester, Minnesota, shares some thoughts on Conficker. Hi, Steve. I'm a few episodes behind, so I apologize if you've already discovered this. In the episodes I've listened to recently, you've commented on how amazing it is that it's taking so long for computers to be updated with critical security patches. I agree with your assessment that the corporate review of Microsoft patches may be partly responsible. However, I read a blog post this morning that brought up another probable factor. Many people cannot install updates. Here's the relevant excerpt. Quote, relatively few of the infected computers, about 4%, are in the U.S., according to a report issued by SRI International in March. About half the Conficker infections were Chinese computers, at more than 10 times the rate of U.S. infections. That makes sense, Wisniewski said, because there are now more web-connected computers in China than anywhere else. There's also a high incidence of pirated copies of software in China, meaning users there cannot keep their machines up to date with security patches. I just wanted to provide that as food for thought. Thanks to you and Leo for the work you do on security now. It's been a great way for me to learn and stay current. That's a good point. If you if you uh, don't, well, is that true? If you don't have a legitimate copy, you can't update? Yes, and I remember when that change was made, and I thought, oh, That's a goodness. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you are forced now to install the genuine update or genuine windows genuine verifier whatever they call it um and it's like okay or genuine advantage that's it and i love it too because when you agree to this it brings up a dialogue and it says when you're done we'd like to show you some of the many benefits of genuine advantage it's like uh Uh, no thank you (laughs) many benefits to us (laughs) exactly to microsoft so so i remember thinking oh goodness you know now we're not going to get the updates on all versions of windows it's you know you've got to pass the genuine advantage which i know i've heard derisively referred to as genuine disadvantage right um but it is the case that that those machines which are are running windows but not able to be updated for this reason 
you know, they they didn't get the fix in October. They didn't get fixed until Confraker infected them and then closed the back door behind it. Yeah, yeah. And there's also uh, uh, a lot of, you know, I'm surprised 4% seems like such a low number. It doesn't, uh, I, I'm actually shocked that it's so low in the U.S. I guess we're we're doing our job. We're getting the word out. But I think there's also a lot of people in the U.S. who choose not to update. And there are a lot of people in the U.S. who can't update because their updates are blocked. I get this call a lot. People had a bad update and they haven't been able to update ever since. A failed update will block future updates, right? We've got that in our in a coming question. Oh, you're way yep. ahead of me. Well, then let's move along. Nick Antonizic in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, wonders about mitigating the buffer overflow threat. Dear Steve and Leo, first, thank you both to the 10th power for the Security Now podcast. It has become my favorite source of information and entertainment. Because of you both, I am always looking forward to Thursday nights every week. That's when the show comes out. I have a question regarding buffer overflows. I operate my computers from limited user accounts. I also force high-risk applications to operate under sandboxing. It includes Firefox, Foxit, the PDF viewer we talked about, image viewers, and office applications in that list. So if an application is victim to a successful buffer overflow attack and the application is contained inside the sandbox in a limited account, is the injected hostile code constrained or confined in any way? As I examine the process stack, even from a limited account, over half of the processes running on the system are system processes. I'm guessing if the hostile code is injected into a system-owned portion of the stack, that any precautions I take will not provide any protection or containment at all. Likewise, if the hostile code lands in a limited portion of the stack, it will not have much authority to modify the system. Am I correct? And when faced with the practicalities of implementing or Suffering a buffer overflow attack is hostile code more likely or less likely to be injected into a system-owned area of the process stack. Thanks again for a great show. As always, I'm looking forward to hearing Thursday's episode. So he, what he's saying is, I take the precautions that you, you guys have recommended, particularly the limited user and running sandboxy, but there are still escalated code running on my machine. What happens if that's where the uh, malware strikes? Right. Um, I, I think what Nick doesn't understand, and I just sort of wanted to make sure that our listeners um, understand, is that even though a sandboxed program can see both system processes and its own limited account processes, and he, he's certainly right about that. If you look at the process, you use a process viewer from within the sandbox, you can see those. What the sandbox is doing is preventing modification to the system. So what the sandbox can't tell, can't see, is that that when a process in the sandbox makes a modification to a file, it's actually sort of it, it's caching the modification so that so that the actual file is not modified, but what happens is a copy of the file is brought into sort of a holding area and that copy is modified. Then if this application checks to see if its modification was successful, it's actually checking, it's sort of redirected, and it's checking that modified version, not the real one. So something malicious can think, ha, 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 you know, I've got the guy now, and and be making changes to the registry, to the hard, uh, to, to, to files on the hard drive, I mean, to to, to 
in RAM processes to anything, and it thinks it's succeeding. Well, this is actually all a a a charade that the sandbox creates that prevents things in the sandbox from making permanent changes. They make them only locally to their own copies. And so when when that when that thing terminates, when you reboot your system, when you shut down the sandbox, those changes are flushed and no permanent changes have been made. So it really doesn't matter whether something thinks it's trying to modify system processes or perform in process injections or you know do anything it's doing, it's all been carefully orchestrated so that there there is uh, those changes are simulated for the sandboxed environment not and nothing actually is changed there's no rights of any kind that escape that out into the system um externally good so you are safe what yes. about what about you know if you do a uh, you know, a process viewer, uh, you'll see there are system processes running. If you're not running Sandboxy, there are system processes running. Is it the same for them? They're not, uh, are they not accessible by malware? Can malware not leak into them? Correct. So, I mean, that, and that's exactly the question he was asking was, yeah. you know, can't, you know. Even is, without, this, even without Sandboxy. Yes. Does it really, oh, without Sandboxy, no, you're, I mean, you're, the problem is there are all kinds of ways, for example, of performing a privilege uh, a, a privilege elevation attack, right, where right. even though you're in a limited a limited account, you you jump to some piece of code in the kernel right. that has the side effect of elevating your permission. Then you come back. Now you're you know you're you're you you have full admin permissions, and then the changes you make what would normally not be permitted by that account are permitted. Right. Right. So that's that's why these ex- exploits are an issue, because even if you're running as a limited user, you can get in trouble. Yes. It, I mean, you're not supposed to be, right. but there are privilege escalation exploits which get around the whole limited user. To make it contained. clear, though, those require that there be a hole in the operating system. Yes. But there, are, the, there is malware that doesn't require that, that you run an application that does stuff. If Correct. you run that as a limited user, generally it won't be able to escalate its privilege, elevate its privileges, and, and it, you're safer. But if there's a hole in the operating system, there's all bets are off. Doesn't matter what you're running as. Well, yes. Or if if you're a victim of a of a social engineering attack where something right. says, "Hi, um, we're we're Happy AV. We need you to authenticate uh, your admin account so that we can install." Our system drivers. Well, you've just given some bad thing right. complete access to your system. Right. And we should also mention, and we've said this several times, but just so people know, in Vista and OS ten nowadays, you don't have to run as a limited user because even when you're an admin, you're really not an admin. You're always a limited user, and you have to escalate using uh, user account control or OS ten's equivalent uh, before you're able to do anything anyway as an administrator. Right. You have to give it an administrator right. password. Uh, Moving along to the next question. This comes from Robert Harder in Monterey, California. Robert asks, why do all CDs or why do some CDs stall the whole system? Thanks for the great tidbits we learn about the down and dirty on hard drives when we listen to security now. I have all the uh, episodes way back to number one in iTunes. But what I really want to know is why optical drives have the power to bring a computer to its knees. On both Macs and Windows, and for many years, computers seem to really choke and stall when CDs or DVDs are inserted or have bad parts or whatever. Why, 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 what's wrong? Why? How come something like a, a bad disc can bring the whole machine to a crashing halt? 
I just I saw this and I just chuckled to myself because this is some one of the continuing annoyances I have with Windows. I hadn't experienced it as much with the Mac. Is I and I was going to ask you, Leo, is that is it the case with the Mac as much as it as it is with Windows? I'm trying to remember because with Windows, I mean, if if you do anything involving a CD drive. It literally your your UI locks up. It's just you know everything waits, and that's until... because these are not asynchronous. I mean, synchronous uh, reads, right? They're no. as, they're asynchronous it's in the operating system. Or... The system is as I described it in question number one. It is ridiculous. <laughs> well, remember, is... Windows was did not have CD-ROM support. It was added well, after the fact, and that's the reason. It's the heritage. Yeah, it's the fact that we've we, okay. We know. Windows has never been comfortable with the idea of removable file systems. Right. It it didn't have them in the beginning and it has it has never really had them done right. It's ridiculous that 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 you know having the CD in sort of a unknown state. You know, and CDs take a long time and an increasingly long time also with, with in, in the case of DVDs to sort of get themselves up to speed and seeked and logged in and all happy. Meanwhile, nothing else. Ha- I mean, literally, the whole system comes to a halt while you wait for the CD to decide, you know, if it's good or bad or, or what condition it's in. And it, it's a purely function. There's, there's nothing, nothing from a technology standpoint that enforces this except just the, the legacy of design, which has been dragged, kicking and screaming forward, you know, to where we are today and this annoyance, which just, you know, who knows if it's ever going to go away. There are, these are called uh, blocking applications. There are, it is possible I th- on the Mac to have that happen. I mean, we're the, the, the beach ball, they call it the beach ball of death sometimes where the little waiting, the working, spinning color spinning wheel just starts and will not stop. So I don't think OS 10 is, is uh, immune to this either. Um, but a good operating system should handle this kind of stuff. What do they get in endless loops or something? Or they're waiting well, for a read, or they're they just hung up until a read completes? Or I mean, it's it's definitely the case that it's easy to take proper operation for granted. Operating systems are super complex. There's a phenomenal amount of synchronization and interlock going on, and. The problem is that the the designers from a decade ago didn't anticipate some things that we have today. And so the result is a kludge. It, it's no one's fault except the fault of evolution. I mean, that's, you know, our own DNA has all kinds of gunk in it that, that we no longer need. As a, and that's just a function of history. So Windows is the same way. It's evolved over time. And then there, there are things that, that just that we're not a big problem that be, that become a larger problem as we move forward that sort of never get fixed. And and this is one of those. I just sort of, it, it, it's something that is annoys me all the time about Windows. So when I saw this, I said, yes, Robert, boy, do I agree with you. This is just, you know, ridiculous. And there's no good reason for it except heritage, except legacy. Uh, I, I'm going to jump back a little bit just to, cause I, I, I don't know if you noticed, I missed question five, Casey Klingon. Yep, I noticed. In Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He says that people never cease to amuse. Hmm. Hey, Mr. Gibson, let me start by saying that I really enjoy your weekly podcast, Security Now, with Leo Laporte. It's always very informative. Lately, you've been discussing the newest version of the worm known as Conficker. 
and the importance of always staying up to date with the latest Windows updates in order to make your PC as secure as possible, though we all know that Windows PCs are never really totally secure. Well, as I've been listening, I've noticed that a great deal of time, those who get infected or hacked by worms and viruses like Conficker are those who do just the opposite of, of what I just said. Now, to be honest, in the back of my mind, I've been saying to myself, come on. Who is really dumb enough to deny Windows updates? I mean, for me, every time that little balloon in the taskbar appears, I get excited, like I've got a gift. All right, so I'm easily amused. Well, as the title of this post says, people never cease to amaze me. I noticed the other day that I was using one of the computer labs on my college campus that auto-updates were turned off. Needless to say, the first thing that came through my little mind was, what idiots. So as any responsible geek would do, I proceeded to correct the issue. I came to find out the machine I was using hadn't even updated the Service Pack 3. Yes, it didn't even have Service Pack 3. I was totally at a loss for words. Needless to say, I then immediately proceeded to Microsoft's website, downloaded and installed all available updates. This leads me to wonder how many other computers on this campus are in the same predicament. Anyways, all this to say you were indeed correct about the fact that many Windows machines are running unsecure and on outdated software. Thanks again for your helpful info, and please continue to keep us updated on everything's security. That's a case, I think, a, a common case of uh, neglect. Uh, machines that are on big networks that nobody's responsible for just get neglected. Yeah, and, you know, computers in a lab would be a good case. You can imagine, I mean, we don't know specifically and when auto-updates were turned off and why. We know that Microsoft has them on by default, prompts you, bugs you until you turn them off. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's difficult to have them off. But, but something somewhere deliberately said, I want auto-updates off on this machine. Maybe they were in the middle of something they didn't want, you know, to right. be forced to reboot. I mean, we just don't know. But it certainly is the case that in, in, in this instance, there was, um, you know, this important system, which is arguably very important, was disabled. Now, you, you might say, oh, well, certainly this, they're on a big private network behind a big university routing system. They probably don't have public IPs. Um, out, or incoming traffic is probably heavily filtered and blocked. That may be so. But one of the things that, the, that, that Conficker is now doing is sending out ARP probes across the entire subnet where it's located. So even if that machine was protected, if, if there was any other instance, for example, of, of a machine being outside the network, getting infected, which is then brought into campus, that machine can infect across the entire subnetwork th um, through this, this, this next generation um, you know, uh, LAN technology that Conficker has that we'll be talking about in detail next week. So, you know, it's it really is the case with state of the art malware that um, things can get you even when you're when you believe it's safe to depend upon further exterior resources, like the fact that you're behind a router and all the machines in your own network can be trusted. If one stops being trustworthy, then the rest of your network can go down. Moving to Jesse in Madison, Wisconsin, who says, I know why Windows machines don't get patched. <laughs> Steve, I'm sure that you've been reading the stories about how many Windows computers aren't yet patched for config. Or I think you know why computers aren't patched, even though the default Windows settings might even be set to, to automatically install. I think I know why, he says. I was helping my mom with her laptop, which is running Windows Vista Home Edition. I noticed that Windows Update hadn't installed any patches since 
November. I confirmed her settings. It was indeed set to automatically download and install updates. So I ran Windows Update manually. It failed. I didn't write down any error messages, but the gist of it was it couldn't find or download any updates. This is bad. I googled for hours to see if anyone had seen this problem and if there were any solutions that worked. I found hundreds of forum postings with people having this problem. No one had a surefire solution that worked for me or other commenters on the forums. I tried many things to fix the problem. I won't bore you with the details, but be assured as a Linux user, I am not afraid to get into the guts of the system. I even ran Spinrite. Puts a little happy face there. In the end, the only solution? Reinstall Windows. Luckily, my mom only used the computer for browsing the internet and checking her email, so the reinstallation was relatively painless. However, if I hadn't been around to help her, I'm sure she would have never even, not only not fixed the problem, she may have not known. Her computer would have just been another drone in a botnet army, or worse, her identity might have been stolen. Most people are no more computer literate than my mom, so if Windows is failing to update itself for a significant portion of the population, this could explain why so many Windows computers are not being patched properly. Thanks for the show. Wow. And that's, you know, similar to what you said yeah. uh, you deal with on the radio show yep. all the time, Leo. Yep. Um, I've seen, I've had it happen to me. I, I've had systems where one particular um, security patch won't take. I'll try it over and over and over. It just says, nope, sorry, can't install that. And and here again, I I salute Microsoft for doing something as difficult as this is, this, I mean, this is not an easy thing to do when you think about how complex Windows has become, how many individual components it has, how they're all interlocked and interlocking. I mean, dealing with managing the problem of keeping it up to date, it, it's just a phenomenal job. And the whole sort of almost on the fly updating where you're bringing in new code, you're you're somehow arranging that next time you boot, the new code will be running and it will replace the old code. You also need to, you know, to guarantee that you can roll back these changes if they hurt you. So there's, you know, undoes on all of this. I mean, this is a huge problem, but it's also a problem of their creation. So, you know, it, it's the case that Windows update is, is, is complex and delicate and fragile and unfortunately, it breaks. At the same time, we now depend upon it more every day because of, of, of you know, these evolving threats from malware and, and worms like Configure. We have to have it working. So when it breaks, it's not optional to have it working or not. It's like, oh, my God, you know, this guy reinstalled Windows is the only thing he could do after spending a great deal of time struggling to, to you know, to keep the current installation he had no choice. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to start telling my listeners on the radio show, check to see if you're getting updates. Because uh, you know, we, the, the class of calls I get is, I, I have an update that won't finish. So I have to re, every time I reboot, I start my machine up, it says, okay, you know, got to do this update and it never does finish. It's yep. a, it, it happens all the time. You get an update that is incomplete, is something went wrong. And Microsoft has a fairly lengthy page in its knowledge base on what to do if Windows updates breaks. And it's there is no one fix. There are a lot right. of different things to try. You know, you clean out. There's a folder, temporary folder, where updates are stored. You clean that out. You might have to clean the registry, uh, you know, by hand. It's a mess. Who would have ever thought that we would be in a position where we would need to update this operating system or any operating system so often? Yes. 
Yes. I mean, that, that that's exactly the problem. It's like, okay, throw some cold water on us and wake us up. It's like, wait a minute, look, look at the degree to which yeah. we, we're just putting up with nonsense. I can imagine that this is costing Microsoft a huge amount of resources to keep up with that yeah. they never anticipated. Well, and is it, is it any surprise that they were so reluctant to get themselves involved in security? It's right. expensive. It's difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a whole nother class of hard. Jonathan Isler, Mount Airy, Nor- Maryland. Is that the same Mount Airy? No, I don't think it is that Andy Griffith was, uh, was from Mount Airy. It was in, uh, wasn't in Maryland. I have a mug from there. Anyway, he wonders about the blocking of HTTPS traffic, secure HTTP. Steve, I recently had an issue providing support for a school because their IT director had blocked all HTTPS traffic on their network. Okay, I'd like to, I'd like to hear the rationale for that. Uh, in particular, uh, this user uh, was unable to go to go to meeting because the site automatically redirects users to HTTPS, as many security-conscious sites do. The IT director said, allowing HTTPS access for certain sites is difficult. <laughs> and asked us to find a different way to provide the support. I cannot possibly understand why an IT director would be blocking all HTTPS traffic on a network that people needed to do work on. What are your thoughts? I love Security Now, most of all the Twit podcasts. They definitely keep me sane uh, during a three-hour daily commute. Wow. Thanks, Leo and Steve. Wow. Well, they said this was a school. Yeah. And the short answer is the IT director can't easily monitor and filter HTTPS because it's encrypted and secure. Right. So his answer is disallow it. Force all connections to be standard HTTP, mm-hmm. which much less technology um, can be brought to bear on for filtering and monitoring actions of of users within the school. So, you know, we know that it's absolutely possible to filter HTTPS, but it requires much more expensive systems and it requires, you know, um, uh, proxying connections and putting uh, custom root certificates on all the web browsers that, that, that are going to do it. We've talked about how this is done in enterprises often. In this case, the um, the school IT just said, well, we're not going to go through all that. We're just simply going to deny HTTPS because we can't see what's inside. And our policy uh, apparently is we want to be able to see everything that's crossing our network. Um, I'd be surprised if, that, if it weren't just that simple. Wow. Yeah, I think you're exactly, that's probably exactly right. Um, but, but, you know, you can't use uh, Gmail. I mean, there's a lot of legitimate stuff you'd want to use. Is well, you there? Can't, a, you can't even log in to Gmail because it forces right. you to do a secure, if only briefly, to do a secure connection to log in. So you're right. I mean, it really does limit you. On the other hand, the school policy might be: sorry, you can't do anything that requires right. that kind of security. We don't want you doing that anyway. Right? Um, would there be a way that they could allow go to meeting only to have HTTPS? Is there some? Um, yeah, certainly. Um, given. That go to meeting servers are on relatively fixed IPs. They they could certainly make an exception. Just allow in, that IP, okay. In their blanket block, right. you know, in, in their blanket uh, traffic filter for that for that range of IPs. Yes. 
Number 10, Zuran in Ontario, Canada, wonders about Configure. Who isn't? We're all wondering about Configure. This is going to be a good episode next week when you cover yeah. this in great detail. He says, recently concerning the fervor surrounding Configure, I thought of something that seems too obvious to work, but uh, I'm not sure where the issue is. If I understand correctly, this is a whole category of questions we get. What did I miss? We call this. Uh, if I understand correctly, the Configure worm generates a list of uh, domain names, which it checks for updates. The most recent one, the April Fool's update, 50,000 domains a day. And some internet service providers have been pre-registering domains to prevent the updates. Legality and ethics aside, would it be possible to go a step further and not only register to the domain, but use it to create a rogue update for Configure that tells it to destroy itself? Whether or not this is possible, I'd, I'd really like to hear why. You could... Could you do that? I mean, well, it is illegal. Legality and ethics aside, yes. <laughs> the the first, I mean, we were abs- I mean, I'm glad he he said that because you're right. We've we've discussed many times the idea of white hats going in and create and taking, you know, leveraging the the worm against or or the virus or 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 the trojan or whatever against itself and and using it for for good, unquote, as opposed to evil. And remember, we had the one story about the BBC, who yeah. I think it was the BBC that yeah. that that used a botnet and demonstrated that it it worked. Sent spam, uh, den- uh, did a denial of service attack against a willing ISP, and then modified all of the bots' screensaver to l- inform their owners that their system was infected and go please go here to find you know a a, a cure. I mean, that was a controversial thing to do, and arguably everything that the BBC did was against the law. Was it unethical? I don't think probably, Um, and probably maybe not even illegal, depending upon what country you're in and who wants to form a complaint. Um, But what's – and I referred to this earlier in the show. One of the things that Conficker does is very clever. And that is it specifically blocks this kind of effort, not only being taken over by good guys, but by other bad guys who would like to commandeer the Conficker worm army that's been built. And that is, um, since, I mean, exactly as, as, as Zurhan says, you've got 50,000 domains. The worm's going to check every day for a small subset of those. So – you could you you could potentially set up your own server at some of those domains, and Conficker would statistically some Conficers would contact that domain. In which case, you've got a connection to it. Why not do something? Well, the reason is that the authors are on the top of their game. They have a um, a requirement that any packages coming into Conficker contain a valid digital signature signed by them. And because this is public key technology in a digital signature, even reverse engineering Conficker, all we could get, and we have determined, all we could get, we'll be talking about this next week, is the public key. There's no way, and this is how public key technology works, asymmetric cryptography, there's no way, even from having the public key for us to know what the private key is. The author of Conficker or authors have the the private key. 
So anything that they want their worm to update, they package up and they sign with their private key and they stick it out on the Internet on these prearranged servers for it to be discovered by the worm. The worm discovers it, downloads it, and then uses its public key contained in its own code to verify the signature before it allows it into the system. So, I mean, it's the same way, frankly, the Windows updates work. Windows updates are signed by Microsoft's private Windows update key that prevents Windows from being spoofed and us accepting any malicious Windows update packages. Configure does exactly the same thing. So, I mean, it's using state-of-the-art cryptography wow. That's kind of to amazing. protect itself. Yeah. Yeah. So you you couldn't do this. Configure no. say, no, you're not allowed. Sorry. You'll say, sorry, you, that uh, doesn't look like it came from us. Wow. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back with uh, Gurko Dries in the Netherlands. He's worried about information leakage using VPNs. Uh, and, uh, uh, Brad, great question. <laughs> and Brad has a cookie management scheme he'd like to. Another, another uh, one of those questions, you know, what am I missing? But before we do that, I want to mention our friends at Nerds On Sight. I want to be a nerd.com. Nerds On Sight is a great team of IT professionals. You probably qualify just by listening to this show. They're looking for nerds, geeks, people like you with all competencies and skills. And, and they'd like you to go to a nerds-only meeting to find out more about what they can do for you. It's IWantToBeANerd.com. That's the website. The Nerds On Sight team of IT professionals is, uh, is growing. If you're a PC or a Mac expert, or if you're in Cisco or Oracle, or you name it, they need a fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, sales, trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus, and more. They're especially looking for nerds who are, uh, are focused on today's small and medium enterprises. That's a huge and growing market. If you're in business, if you do IT, but you don't, you're, you, you, you don't want to be it, with, burdened with the, the business part of it, you just want to do the stuff you love, focus on your passions, be in business for yourself but not by yourself, then this is what you got to do. you got to get in touch with nerds on site. They operate out of eight countries now. They started in Canada, the U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, and India. You can tune up your uh, competencies in their University of Nerdology, 250 different competencies. You can get helps from other nerds, support in your business, and more. Just find out about it. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com. And register for a nerds-only meeting today. I think they use GoToMeeting for those, actually. It makes it very easy for you. I want to be a nerd.com. Nerds on site. We're looking for a few good nerds. Like anybody who listens to this show. I mean, pretty much anybody who listens to this show would qualify. Uh, Gurko Dries in the Netherlands is being bothered by information leakage when using VPN software. He says, hi, Steve and Leo. I first wrote to you about this a month ago or two, but you either decided not to discuss it on the show or you might have missed it in a daily torrent of feedback. I decided to mention it again just in case you missed it. I think it's an important question. When using any kind of VPN, virtual private network software, any kind known to me anyway on a laptop, I find that some information always leaks to the network you're connected to. When waking up or booting a computer, running any operating system out there, Usually programs like an email client or Skype or Gmail notifier or whatever start up and immediately try to connect to their respective services. This is before the VPN has been established. And at that point, you're leaking information about who I am. 
my email provider, for instance, what programs I use. This could enable an attacker on the network to figure out what attacks to use against my machine. Do you have any ideas on how to counter this type of information leakage? Isn't it just a problem of what starts when? Well, it's such a great question, and I immediately put it in to the feature list for CryptoLink. Oh, good. CryptoLink will have a essentially a hooking intercepting driver, which installs at boot time. And so it is, I mean, this is just a perfect example of why I'm excited about, you know, doing my own and why I'm, 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 I'll be enjoying having a protracted development period, which is interactive like this so that people who say, Hey, you know, here's what I need. Here's, Hey, what about this? And what about that? Um, will I'll be able to incorporate that wish list into the product. And so, I mean, it's it's there now. It's going to have it. This notion of um, and you'll be able to configure it so that until you establish the link, no traffic flows out of the interface other than what's minimally necessary, which is basically just establishing the, the uh, interface's IP address, but no protocol traffic. So that's a great question. I don't know if any other... VPN that addresses it, but it's one more reason why I've decided I'm going to write my own for everybody. Huh. So it is It is really an issue of uh, kind of saying, don't start until I'm started. Well, yeah, most it's the idea is that um, if you installed a shim down in the network layers, down on the so-called Endis layer, uh, CryptoLink's driver will install itself between the NIC and the rest of Windows, the whole driver stack. And it's easy enough for it to simply block, just like a personal firewall would, to block any tra- any and all traffic um, that is not running through the VPN. So you'd be able to go somewhere boot the machine confident in knowing that none of the other junk like Windows Update, for example, that wants to get on the network and see what's going on can establish, can, can leak any traffic at all if that's the way you've configured CryptoLink. It'll only be running through, uh, the traffic is only allowed running through the VPN even before CryptoLink starts since that driver will be down there blocking, preemptively blocking any traffic. Harry's saying in our IRC chat room that uh, Windows does allow you to start a VPN before you log in, which would presumably be soon enough to prevent that kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't know without... Well, before you log in... Um, one, like on boot up? I don't know what tr- what services would be running. Certainly Windows Update does not require you to log in. Oh, so, so system-level services that aren't login um, required would still be, could still be a problem. Interesting. Well, I'm glad you're addressing that. That's great. I'm going to. I'm, yeah. I was a great question. I was like, oh, yeah, there's a great <laughs> additional feature. feature. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the best software is dev- is really developed in that kind of co- collaborational environment. I mean, that's one of the things that's really changed uh, nowadays because of the Internet, uh, because of uh, Web 2.0 is you can have this iterative software design situation where people are giving you feedback as you work. And it's great. Well, I've been doing a lot of that thanks to the news groups that, that, that I run at GRC.com. Uh, this DNS benchmark owes many of its features to ideas that people have had. I mean, there there's a I mean there's a trade-off because it tends to be I, I have to guard against people saying, oh, but what about this and what about that and hey, I'd like to have this and so forth. I mean, it's you, you can end up running around in circles 
And I, so I have to control myself not to, you know, not to endlessly be adding features. One of the things that I'm going to do with, with CryptoLink is do the UI last. That is deliberately have a, a temporary interim user interface so that I don't invest in UI design until all the features are there that I want to have there. Because what I've noticed over time is one of the most expensive things to do is for someone to say, oh, here's a great, you know, how about this idea? And and I'm thinking, oh, that's fantastic. But I don't have anywhere to put the button. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, an amazing amount of time gets spent in like re-engineering, rejiggering the the, the UI in order to, to accommodate great ideas. So I've decided I'm going to deliberately forestall the UI side, uh, there will be a UI, but it'll just be just enough to, you know, to exercise a product and have it all working. And my intention is to have, you know, to very quickly get something going and then have a, 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 um, uh, a timeline of, of other features and just, just add feature after feature after feature until it's feature complete. At that point, you know, we'll let, we'll let everyone play with it, see if there's anything I've forgotten and when it looks like it's stable, I'll put the UI on it, and we're done. Cool. Very cool. Last question. This comes to us from Brad Bayenhoff, San Diego, California. He's got a cookie management scheme he'd like to run by you. Steve, you mentioned in episode 190 about the two extremes of cookie management, the one let every cookie in crowd versus the two scrupulously inspect everything crowd. I used to be in that second group, but I think my current system nicely fits between the two. It's very no fuss, but still very restrictive. In Firefox, I have the browser set to accept all cookies, even third-party cookies. (gasps) However, it is also set up to remove cookies every time the browser is closed. To allow for persistent logins on the site I use most, I've added my most used domains to an allow whitelist in the cookie exceptions dialog. So what this means is all cookies are accepted during a session. No sites get broken for a refusal to accept cookies. But all cookies from domains I haven't specifically whitelisted get thrown out when Firefox closes so there's no persistent tracking by unknown sites. I think this sounds like a good system. It does. What what makes this whitelist so easy to administer is an extension called Permit Cookies. Puts an icon in the status bar. You just click the icon to change the default cookie exemption rule for the site you're currently visiting. Oddly, the copy on the Mozilla add-on site won't install because its Max version doesn't extend to the current Firefox, but you can get it from the author's website with no problems. Apparently, it works. What, what do you think? That seems like a good idea. It's a really nice idea. There, I, I'm aware of people who use the keep cookies until I terminate my browser option. It is right there in the user interface. There's allow first-party cookies, allow second-party or allow first-party cookies, allow third-party cookies, and then underneath that is a drop-down box where you're able to make the to to choose the option um, allow until the browser is terminated. Some logic or s- some statement to that effect. And so what it does is it, it allow it holds the cookies in memory, never writes them to disk. So your system is fully functional until you terminate, in which case it flushes all of those cookies out. Um, I did pursue the permit cookies add-on because I've become <clears throat> admittedly something of a Firefox cookie or <laughs> add-on junkie. Um, and it's exactly as Brad said. The, the, if you put permit cookies into the find add-ons dialog built into Firefox – 
it'll say that nothing's there. There, but there's a link that says, you know, like find all versions or something to that effect. If you click that, it will take you to the page. Um, and if you click the author's name, it takes you to the author's page, which is sort of a different name. It's like Gloria's something or other. Um, and he's done a bunch of different kind of add-ons. Down toward the bottom is Permit Cookies. That one, and, and he acknowledges the fact that that there's a version problem that you that that you know his latest one on his site installs. Permit Cookies is very is a very small add-on. It puts a little C down in your toolbar. And what I like about it is if you visit a site which you have whitelisted, or in this case greenlisted, um, the little C turns green. So if I go to Amazon.com, it's green. It knows that I have got Amazon.com in my whitelist saying I'm going to allow persistent cookies of, of whatever kind. And the same thing for eBay or other sites you visit. When you go to a non-allowed site, the, the little C is just uh, gray or white. It's not green. And then you're able to click on it, and it pops up a dialog if you want to change that site's permission to allow persistent cookies. So it's, it's, it's another – I would recommend this for, for people who like the idea of having that kind of control. Allow all cookies, first and third, third-party cookies, flush them when you leave um, Firefox so they don't persist across – startup sessions of Firefox, which means you're not going to be tracked more than across your current session, um, and then whitelist the sites where you want to keep cookies permanently. That's, that's another nice solution. And, of course, there's uh, somebody's pointing out in our chat room uh, flash cookies, but that's another topic for another Ah, day. yes. <laughs> yep. Because we are out of questions and out of time, Mr. Gibson. Always a great pleasure. Next week, Conficker, the ins and outs of the uh, most famous worm of our time. I think it probably is. I mean, we had Code Red and we have Blaster back in those days. This is the this one has really had the industry chasing its tail, and it's becoming you know it has be it has turned out to be extremely difficult to deal with. And one of the interesting things is that the authors are tracking the anti-conficker work closely. Wow. That is everything that is done to try to thwart it. They respond, they, he or they, he, she, or they, the authors respond to directly. So, you know, they are, it's not something that they just sort of put out into the world and forgot about. Yeah. You know, this is a project that they've been pursuing for six or seven months and, you know, all leveraged from one particular windows exploit. The problem is, this is not the last exploit we've seen. We're seeing them all the time. This is a worm because it allows, you know, a, if, if a Windows machine is not behind a NAT router so that its ports are directly exposed to the Internet, it allows other instances of the worm to, to infect unpatched machines. And that's how these machines have become infected. That's what I'm going to do next, by the way. I deliberately manually infected this my test machine that I've been watching it on for a while because it is behind a NAT router. Um, the next thing I'm going to do is to set up a clean virgin build of XP and put it out on the net and see how long it takes for it to get taken over automatically. Minus that, uh, the patch that Microsoft put out in November or October, whatever Pre it was. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that'll be it. I can't wait to hear more about this. Next uh, week. We will dissect it all. Now, if you want to know more about what we just talked about, you can find a transcript, 16 kilobit versions of all the show's show notes and more at Steve's site, grc.com. That stands for Gibson Research Corporation. 
That's where you'll also find Spinrite, that great program we always talk about, the hard drive maintenance utility that is just, there's nothing better. It's just the king of the hill. Has been for years. Uh, And, of course, a lot of free stuff that Steve gives away. Useful tools like Shoot the Messenger, Shields Up, Decombobulator, Unplug and Pray, Wismo. It's all at grc.com. We also have show notes at wiki.twit.tv. They're created by the listeners, which is always handy, usually with lots of links in there. Uh, We have a friend feed room now called Twit Conversations. If you're on friend feed, it's twit-conversations. Uh, that uh, people uh, partake in uh, during the live taping, and you can comment after the fact as well. And, of course, the live show is every uh, Wednesday afternoon at uh, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 11 a.m. Pacific or 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv or twit.am if you just want to listen to the audio. And, uh, that way you can listen, comment in our chat rooms. We have many of them on Stickam, on Ustream, uh, on uh, IRC. And on FriendFeed now, so that you can uh, comment, and we we I monitor them all and uh, try to feed the comments back into the show. So it's it's we always appreciate it when you do that. If you aren't listening uh, to the show every week, you might want to subscribe in iTunes. You can get it automatically by going to uh, the iTunes Store and searching for Twit. You'll find all the Twit shows there, including this one, Security Now. They're free. You get them automatically the minute they ship. Security Now comes out Thursday. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Always a pleasure. Talk Sorry. to you next week. Next week we config together. Security now. Security now.